Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and we have biases, and they're going to show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you think the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. and welcome back to Fireside Breakdowns, where we bring you in-depth analysis and witty hot takes on the most interesting headlines out there. Tonight, we are talking about something super intriguing, way controversial. Some might even call it sexy. That's right. We are breaking down this big-ass infrastructure bill. Okay. Okay. It's maybe one of the least sexy topics we've covered, right? But it is important, and it's more controversial than one would think. And we are really damn witty, so I only lied a little bit. It's true. It's Infrastructure Week here at Fireside. And yeah. as everybody knows, that never goes well. <laughs> also, you said you said big-ass infrastructure, and there is an XKCD comment, uh, comic <laughs> that's like one of my favorites that talks about moving the hyphen in whenever somebody uses the big-ass modifier. So it became a big-ass infrastructure. Yes. Oh, God, I love it. Punctuation is my jam. <laughs> it's funny how much moving that hyphen one word changes yeah. things. Hyphens, um, Oxford commas. In dash, M dash. Those are two different things that look like hyphens that are not hyphens. I know. And they have distinct uses in writing. And it and pisses me off. And I wrong all the time. Yeah. That's, everybody does. Nobody knows when to use what unless you are pedantic enough like me to look it up every time you put a dash in a sentence or you had to take a journalism class for your undergrad where you had to actually lay things out newspaper style that's really is that where m and n dashes come from is they're the width of the m and the width of the n you know (laughs) you know what's so dumb to me is that it's still a holdover in 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 electronic Writing in Word, I still have to use it for certain essays that I write. And I'm just like, why? Just put a hyphen. It literally changes. Like, nobody is going to read it any different. Nobody is. We're not Washington Post is what we're getting at. So we shouldn't be subject to these ridiculous arbitrary rules. Freedom from the tyranny of M dashes. Um, Anyway, we are, we're like 30, 
three minutes in here, three minutes in and way off track. In all seriousness, um, we are going to take a look at this infrastructure bill because it's important for us to know and understand just what bills like this include, um, what's so controversial about legislation like this, and how this bill compares to other spending efforts. I know personally I've been getting a lot of like the information that's coming from the media, which we're technically part of. So whenever somebody says the media lies, it really like personally irks me because <laughs> this is this is literally media. I don't consider um, myself a part of the media until I get a press pass. Uh, I looked into getting one. It's not terribly difficult. It's really uh, not. <laughs> and I'm like 30 minutes from the White House. I could go down and sit in the press pool. I mean, probably not immediately, but eventually. Yeah. I, and there, I could go to the the annual press gala. Some of us would with do that literally just because we're nerds and we want to see how it works. I would do it just so I could hang out with like Simone Prokovich. Prokopech. I can't say his name, dang it. <laughs> I have one very disappointed friend listening to this right now, and I am so sorry. I also picked the hardest freaking name out of any of the reporters that I know to, to pronounce. I would just like to point out that we're only six minutes in and we already have an Way apology. Off track. Yeah, I know. We are just on fire today. That's infrastructure ah, week for you. Uh, I could have said Lauren Fox, and that would have been like the super easy one to go with, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so let's talk about what's going on here. Um, kind of to set the stage a little bit about uh, this infrastructure battle that's going on. Um, there are two things currently working their way through Congress. Um, both of them are part of the Biden administration's plan on infrastructure. Uh, one is a $1 trillion infrastructure package, and the other is a $3.5 trillion package. Um, they cover different aspects of infrastructure and pay for different things, um, but Biden made it pretty clear that he didn't want to pass one without the other. Um, and combined, they're basically the Build Back Better plan his mm -hmm. whole, like the main plank of his campaign. So the $1 trillion package was actually already approved by the Senate. It was bipartisan. I think like 16 whole Republicans actually supported it, which is like yeah. huge, huge. Um, um, so the holdup right now, most of the uh, drama is around this $3.5 trillion package. Um, and it is currently being, it's, <laughs> it's basically on the chopping block in the House. Yeah. Let me, let me guess here. It's those pesky Republicans that will just not get on board and actually do some work for the American people, right? Yeah, no. No, it's, it's completely not wrong. Not this time. Yeah. This is this one. We don't get to jump to conclusions. The, the holdup for this bill actually is moderate Democrats. Uh, there's like this ideological battle happening between the, the moderates, the centrists, and the progressives. Um, we talked some time ago about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and how they were basically going to be the thorn in the progressive Democrats side uh, as they try to pass some of this bigger, more expansive legislation. Um, and this, well, this is that time. Yeah. Manchin and Cinema, they don't like the price tag on this big $3.5 trillion plan on top of the $1 trillion package that they passed earlier. Um, and so the reason that they're basically they get to be the thorn in the side is because of how they actually have to try to pass this bill. They're using a process that I had never heard of before called budget reconciliation. 
Yeah, most people had never heard of budget reconciliation because most people aren't Senate procedure wonks. Um, <laughs> I mean, I studied American politics in college, you know, it's my minor, and I had never even come across this particular uh, brand of shenanigans in the uh, in, in in Congress. Um, so it, it took me a minute, but budget budget reconciliation is is um, it's a weird one. It's a strange beast. It's a, we're not going to get all the way into the history of it now. It's not something that's always existed. Um, it was past like, uh, I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but it's used all the time now. Um, it's a special parliamentary, parliamentary procedure. Good God. I wrote this and I made it hard for me to say it's a special parliamentary procedure that allows the U.S. Congress to expedite the passage of uh, budgetary legislation in the U.S. Senate. Say that five times fast. Um, no. <laughs> I don't want to say it once. The, the, the important thing to take away from this is that it overrides the filibuster rules in the Senate. Um, so if you're not quite aware of the whole controversy, drama, whatever <laughs> around the filibuster... Uh, May I recommend a podcast? It's ours. Uh, we have what I consider a great episode on it um, from a few months ago. I'm sure we can link it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Um, if not, you can check it out on our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. We'll bump that later again. Um, but definitely go check it out if you are unfamiliar with how the filibuster works or why people fight about it all the time or why everybody is mad that Joe Manchin doesn't want to get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Reconciliation overall is, um, it's very limited in scope. It's strictly limited to matters of the federal budget. Now, specifically the categories of spending, revenue, and the federal debt limit, sometimes uh, referred to as the debt ceiling. The Senate is limited to uh, one, uh, one bill per year per each of those topics, um, but normally they, they, pass, they pass it in like one bill. They just combine all three into one big omnibus style. Um, but within those limitations, uh, it is very, very powerful. Normally, legislation in the, t in the Senate requires a 60-vote supermajority to pass, if you'll think back to your uh, Schoolhouse Rock videos. Um, but with reconciliation, uh, since it bypasses the filibuster, it only takes a 51-vote majority to pass anything. Um, now, both parties have used the reconciliation process to pass legislation, I mean, recently. Uh, the Republicans passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 under Donald Trump. Um, and then this year, Democrats passed the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. So I know, I know what you're probably thinking out there. We literally just said that the Senate was limited to one reconciliation beer book. One, I wish they were limited to one beer. No, one reconciliation bill one per reconciliation year. One reconciliation beer. One reconciliation beer. Things uh, would go so much better. Right, per year, per subject that they combine. And they just passed one in 2021, which, yes, they did. Uh, but that's where another weird thing that I had also never heard of comes into play, called the Senate Parliamentarian. This is not an elected position, but it's kind of like an official advisor to the U.S. Senate. They're tasked with knowing all of the rules of the Senate, and they help adjudicate disputes when they occur. <laughs> if you play D&D, &D, they're basically the DM of the Senate. 
Yep. <laughs> We're nerds. <laughs> Worst DM role ever. But Worst one of their, their primary duties is ruling on what can and can't be done under the Senate's reconciliation process. Um, so this parliamentarian periodically draws ire. People get mad at them because they are an unelected official that can control what laws and what bills can and can't get passed in the Senate when no party has a supermajority. That's a discussion for another time uh, because I'm pretty sure that's its own thing. Um, for yeah. now, just know that the current Senate parliamentarian gave the go-ahead to the Senate to pass two different budget reconciliations this year, um, one addressing fiscal year 2021's budget and the other for fiscal year 2022. So the current $3.5 trillion reconciliation plan is technically for fiscal year 2022. Um, which I think the, this one is, this one's supposed to be like very important because next year, uh, is the midterms. So this might be the last reconciliation bill under Biden that the Democrats control, um, or have the ability to control. So if they lose a seat, uh, when, during the, um, uh, during next year's campaign, they couldn't do this, which is why they're trying to cram. You did a party foul. Your phone just bleeped into our recording. Um, but this is why they're trying to cram everything into this reconciliation bill, uh, because they don't want to gamble on not being able to do it in next year's reconciliation bill for 2023's budget. Um, anyway, if you've been paying attention, you'll... <laughs> or not, because you can't avoid it, you'll know that Democrats don't have a huge majority in the House. I think they can only spare like three votes. Yeah, it's super squeaky. Yeah, and it might be six, but I'm pretty sure it's three. Um, the Senate is even closer. It's 50-50, literally. It's 50, <laughs> 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, um, and with Kamala Harris being the tie-breaking vote, the 51st vote, uh, which means that the Democrats can pass whatever they want with a 51-vote majority, uh, but every Democrat has to be in agreement on whatever they're, pa they're passing, whatever they're voting on. Uh, yeah, which now you see why it is a problem that Senators Manchin and Cinema aren't really on board with this reconciliation bill because they have all the power right now because of who they are as senators they absolutely have to vote in favor of this reconciliation bill or it will fail in the senate but they both have really big issues with the price tag on the bill and like i get it 3.5 trillion dollars is one of those numbers that is so big you can't really conceptualize it well you want me to, i like this i crunch some numbers because <laughs> I have I have problems when a one is followed by more zeros than I've ever seen in my bank account. Correct. Um, so imagine you made God money $10,000 a day, which is not actually God money. It's just God money to us normal people. There are people right. that make way more than this. Yeah. But just let's let's aim for like just low level God money. $10,000 a day. A day. That is, that's like money, money to me. That's $3.65 yeah. million a year. 3.66 on leap years. I'd be reckless making that much money. Mm -hmm. Like 
honestly. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, you want a new motorcycle, babe? Boom, new motorcycle. 2022 Envy Agusta F3, have two in case you wrap one up on the track. It's fine. I have enough to pay for it after like two days of sleeping. It's cool. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's silly money to me. Uh, okay, it would actually be closer to five days. Um, Motorcycles, man. Envy so Agustas especially. Um, anyway, if you make that much money, that much, it would still take 100 million days to earn one trillion dollars if you spent nothing if you socked every cent of that away in a zero percent interest uh which would be a terrible investment don't do it never Um, do it but because again 100 million doesn't mean anything to our small brains that can't again that's just too many zeros let's take that to years that is 273,972.6 years of making $10,000 a day. And that is just for $1 trillion. Technically, these two bills combined are $4.5 trillion. So yeah, yeah. A lot of money. Oh, one more thing for context, because again, I've been living in numbers here. Let's do something a little different. Let's do a landmark event. Um, think back into history. As far as you want to go, because guess what? There is no history that's this old. <laughs> The Homo sapiens. This is old. This might be older than humanity itself. Two hundred seventy-three, almost two hundred seventy-four thousand years. The oldest, oldest uh, fossil of Homo sapiens that um, that we have right now is around three hundred thousand years old. We're not. I'm not exactly sure how much. So it might be a tie. But it's right up there with it. You basically have to be working since Homo sapiens existed to make this much money. We're firmly in like Homo habilis territory at that point. Well, that's the thing. So the the 300,000 year old um, fossil that they found, they're not sure if it's Homo sapiens or Homo habilis. So that's why this might actually be older than the age of humanity. Also, we're such nerds yeah right but i mean like it's you okay. that's why like, people when come you to us. think about it that way you know when you think about it in terms of human species you can understand why people are raising their eyebrows a little bit at that 3.5 trillion dollar price tag yeah. um good news is we don't have to pay for that with individual labor it's not like one or two people going out there and putting in their 40 to try to pay that off. Uh, We'll explain more about how we actually pay for stuff like this in a little bit. But those two senators are really working hard to try to get that number lower uh, to the chagrin of the progressives in the House. This is kind of where they come into play. Because part of what's causing that price tag to be so high is the social programs and the reconciliation bill. And the progressives in the House who really, really love social programs, right? (laughs) We're talking like tax the rich Met Gala dress progressives here are threatening to withhold their votes on that separate infrastructure plan, that smaller one, if they don't get a guarantee on this bigger bill that includes all of these social programs. Yeah. So that's where this fight is at. There's two sides of the same party who are refusing to budge on what they will and won't vote for. Yeah, and this is where the phrase dims in disarray comes from, um, <laughs> because 
it, the Democratic Party is a, I think, big tent party. I think this is the way that you would f- officially call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people from all walks of life on this. This is what the Republican Party tries to be as well. They try to be a big tent party, but I think lately it's been it's been favoring Democrats saying that there's more diversity in the party. Naturally, what that means is there's more conflict within the party. Yeah. Um, so it's a very common trope to hear criticism of the Democratic Party, especially lately, that they can never agree on anything. They can't do anything. So therefore, they can't get anything done because they're always arguing with each other. Ironically, or coincidentally, <laughs> however you want to put it, um, one of the primary propaganda arguments that China makes about democracy in America is that we're always arguing with each other and we're super <laughs> inefficient and can't get anything done. So there is always an element of truth in propaganda. Yeah, there's a playbook that is is being being used on yeah in the in this particular thing. So yeah, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about what's actually in these uh, infrastructure bills? Sure. Okay, so I think we should probably start with the smaller one, because that is the one that pretty much everybody agrees is very important. There's nobody in this conversation, essentially, that doesn't believe that this smaller infrastructure plan, which is called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, is vitally important for America. We're well overdue for a lot of the work that this would cover. This $1.2 trillion package includes like $110 billion for roads. And we're going to throw out numbers, but just remember, like once you have to start substituting words for zeros, we're in stupid money. We're in money that doesn't make sense to our brains anymore. So just we're going to put out numbers, but there's a lot more, more, most of these you can translate to more money that I could spend in a lifetime. Yeah. Like my kids did this uh, like extracurricular thing in elementary school math called spend Bill Gates's money where they had a it's like a, a little counter at the top of this website where you have to go through and it's how much money Bill Gates makes in a day. And you have to try to spend all of his money and you get to choose from different categories. And it's this huge and very difficult thing for elementary school kids to do to spend all of Bill Gates's money. But that's kind of where we're at right now. We're in these yeah. huge figurative numbers. But it does include $110 billion for roads and bridges and major infrastructure construction projects, like $40 billion for bridge repair and replacement. And it would be, according to the White House, the largest single dedicated bridge investment since the construction of the interstate highway system, which was in the 1950s. So it's kind of a really big deal. A lot of these bridges are 60 years old and are behind in maintenance. And it is essential to the safety for people traveling on these bridges all the time that we invest in keeping them, replacing them or or fixing them. Um, And that also, oh, go for it. I was just going to say earlier this year, I think there was that like main bridge over the Mississippi into Missouri that one of the main support beams was found with a crack all the way through. Yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. It wasn't more than a few years ago that... Um, a bridge that I've traveled across many, many times in Minneapolis completely con- like collapsed in the middle of rush hour. Um, like we have to start taking care of our bridges. So this bill includes a lot of money to do that. And it also contains a bucket of money for major projects that would be too large or complex 
for traditional funding programs. Like the state can't necessarily put it through one of their funding programs or it involves multiple states, things like that. Yeah. Stuff like uh, a hyperloop or a high speed train through yeah. you know, from coast to coast, that sort of thing that involves um, coordination across multiple, multiple jurisdictions, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Way too complicated for the split app. Uh, sorry, I was just trying to imagine a bunch of people who don't know how Facebook works trying to work out split. Yes. Um, the this one also includes uh, eleven billion for transportation safety. Like it doesn't. A lot of the stuff doesn't sound sexy, but it's just vitally important to make sure that our citizens don't just get murked by a runaway semi on a hill or something like that. <laughs> right. Like. Um, it's just, it helps states and localities reduce crashes and fatalities, um, especially for, uh, cyclists and pedestrians. So this would add things like bicycle lanes and more sidewalks, that sort of thing. Um, it would direct funding to highway truck and pipelines and hazardous materials for, uh, hazardous material safety efforts. So cleanups and, and yeah. preventing spills, that sort of thing. Uh, one really cool aspect of this infrastructure bill is that it includes a billion dollars to, reconnect communities, especially disproportionately black neighborhoods that have been divided by highways and other infrastructure projects. Um, so it'll fund planning and design and, and reconstruction of street grids and parks to bring these communities back together into a cohesive piece to make it more, to make it easier for people to interact inside of their communities and basically create functioning neighborhoods. Now, we're not going to go through every dollar in these budgets. We're going to hit the high-level items because there's a lot. Um, yeah, but it will be buckets. in, yeah, it, it, it will be in our write-up on the website if you want to see a more complete breakdown of what's going into it. Um, it's just we literally don't have time to read no. all of it. So we'll get you the high-level items on it, um, stuff you might have heard. Um, there's also, uh, so in this $1 trillion one, there's um, $39 billion uh, meant to modernize public transit, um, and sixty-six billion for passenger and freight rail. Um, that would eliminate Amtrak's maintenance backlog and modernize the Northeast Corridor line and bring rail service to areas outside the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic regions. Uh, which rail service is compared to shipping everything by highway much more efficient. <laughs> Yeah. It is, it's, it's a better way, or it's at least a, a more cost-effective way to ship massive amounts of material. It's important to have a very well-functioning rail system, still, in modern America. Um, it also, to, to make a liar out of me, this part of the bill is actually what's earmarked for uh, inner-city rail service, including high-speed rail. Right. So, um, yeah. this... Shortly would be uh, the largest federal investment in public transit in history and in passenger rail since the creation of Amtrak. And that was 50 years ago. Right. Uh, this this uh, smaller bill also includes a big bucket, $65 billion, to improve broadband infrastructure, especially helping uh, lower the price that households pay for internet service uh, by creating low-cost affordable internet plans, by m ensuring that price transparency and competition are available in areas where existing providers aren't currently providing adequate service. And then it would also create a, a permanent federal program that helps low-income households access the internet because we use the internet 
for everything. For everything. It is, uh, I, I mean, if the pandemic hasn't proven it, I don't know what will, but it is not a luxury anymore. It is right. something that I increasingly believe should be considered a public utility. Agreed. And there are a lot of communities across the U.S. that are in the process of incorporating that kind of citywide Wi-Fi situation. But especially for rural and low-income households, access to the Internet is a significant barrier to education and job availability and all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Um, There's also uh, electric vehicle investment, $7.5 billion for zero and low-emission buses and ferries. and another $7.5 billion for plug-in electric vehicle investment. Um, and then to support the, the ele- or to support that electric fleet, there needs to be a, our, our utility system needs some, mm-hmm. some TLC. Um, <laughs> so there'd be $65 billion to rebuild the electric grid, um, yeah. according to the White House. I know here they're slowly working around burying our power lines, finally. Um, because my house, especially during the rainy season, we lose power almost every day. Just if the wind blows just right, it causes us to flicker. And sometimes it's only for a second and sometimes it's for like 10 minutes. Um, (laughs) just because we've got a loose connection somewhere just needs to be upgraded and fixed. Um, so yeah, that's, that's like I said, 65 billion. Um, it would build, New power lines, uh, expand renewable energy, $55 billion to upgrade water infrastructure, which everybody, <laughs> Flint, I think yes. is still fighting for a constant, like a red, uh, a reliable supply of clean water. Yeah. Um, after how many years of investment now? Um, so, yeah, because replacing citywide infrastructure is a long and expensive process. Oh, yes. Um, it would be... Uh, Oh, and then it, there would also be another $50 billion, a lot of money here towards making these systems more uh, resilient. So that, like, you know, when Texas literally froze and lost power, yeah, we could avoid that again. Now, I don't actually know if any of this would go to ERCOT since they separated <laughs> themselves from the national power grid, which is what caused the problem, but... That sort of problem is what right. it would be. There would be plenty of people off. who say, hey... We don't want to be those guys. Um, yeah. yeah, no, my husband, his master's degree is in infrastructure planning and management, and he can literally talk for hours about the need for resiliency in the United States utility system, especially now that we're dealing with ransomware and cyber attacks and our literal electric grid being hacked. Do not so, get me started on ransomware. <laughs> that, is, that is a huge investment um, but it probably could be three or four times bigger than that and we still wouldn't be able to accomplish all the things that we need to Um, and then Um, one of the last things that this this smaller bill includes is environmental remediation so there's a bucket of money there to clean up a lot of the messes that we have made in abandoned mines and orphan gas wells and brownfield sites and to try to you know clean up after ourselves a little bit that's uh a horrible thing. I'm sure everybody hates that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I joke about that now, but like this year has been hell on my ability to like assume the best intents in people. You know? Yeah, that's hard. It kind of brought home to me that there are people who go out and club baby seals. Like that makes, 
I understand why those people exist now because they're just, they're just terrible people in the world. There's terrible people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so (laughs) before we spiral into a nihilistic depression, um, let's, let's hit a little bit about what's in the, the 3.5 trillion big boy, um, infrastructure reconciliation package. Um, so right off the bat, like 135 billion uh, is going to be invested towards uh, sweeping the forests. I mean, uh, agriculture, conservation, <laughs> drought and, and, and forestry programs to reduce carbon emissions, prevent wildfires, um, climate research, debt relief, child nutrition, um, funding for a civilian climate core, a new CCC. Um oh. It is, I mean, it's part of meeting that 80% clean energy and 50% carbon uh, emission by 2030 goal that the Biden administration has set or has more than set, I guess, uh, committed to. Right. And something that you'll notice as we're talking about the buckets in this particular bill, it's a really mixed bag between things that everybody agrees are probably a really good idea, like making sure we take care of our, our forests to prevent more devastating wildfires. And then in that same bucket, you have debt relief and child nutrition and a civilian climate core. So this bill does a lot more mixing between the very practical common sense and the more ideological social programs, which helps to illustrate why it's a bit of a struggle. This bill also includes over $300 billion for housing affordability programs and rental assistance and homeownership initiatives and revitalization projects, tons of things that go toward public housing and making it uh, more possible for people to live in high quality public housing. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you'll notice a lot of this stuff in this, it is kind of a stretch to define it as infrastructure. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people think roads, bridges, power, Internet is a stretch for a lot of people. But again, if you think of it as a utility, it it makes sense to me, Mm -hmm. Um, that sort of thing. If you consider infrastructure the machinery overall that keeps America functional and running, I think things like nutrition and forestry um, can meet that definition. Because the more we invest in it now, um, the the less... um, What's the phrase I'm looking for? The less it interrupts life later on. Right. Uh, it's it's uh, an investment in protection. Uh, yeah, I think an the ounce Biden of prevention. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think the Biden administration called it human infrastructure at one point. Yeah, yeah, and that's I I kind of get where they're going with that. I think it's probably smart that a lot of this got actually t- taken out of the initial infrastructure, the one yes. trillion one that got passed, and put in this um, because because it is the uh, reconciliation package and because it is not technically an infrastructure bill it's just kind of being paired with the infrastructure bill and there's a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. um, i think they can kind of get away with it under the rules of things that affect the federal budget um interestingly there's pretty much nothing that doesn't affect the federal budget (laughs) so you can you can slide a lot of things into yeah. uh, a reconciliation package. That said, there uh, there is the bird rules. We didn't cover them all, but they are a list of exclusions, things that can't be in a reconciliation package. And you're probably going to hear that a lot when this gets sent to the Senate to actually vote on. Um, I'll have to see if we can so, find like a little chart or a, a nice infographic. 
that we can post on social. Yeah, we might be able to make one. Um, I'm not going to commit to that though. People don't hold us to it. We'll we might just rip it from somebody else and yep, credit. We're them. 100% going to credit somebody else. I'm telling yep. you that right now because social is <clears> my job. Yep. Um, so uh, the next would be uh, a, another huge, huge bucket um, is clean energy investment. 100 and almost 200 billion towards clean electricity payment program, um, which is financing for domestic manufacturing of clean energy, auto supply chain technologies, et cetera. Um, and then another 67 billion towards funding low income solar technologies, um, environmental justice investments in clean water, uh, affordability and access, um, climate research programs, federal investments in energy efficient buildings, uh, the LEED certified buildings, which I think are really cool. Every LEED certified building I've been in has like interesting yeah. architecture to me interesting materials um i don't know maybe it's just because all the buildings i've been in are new and so they look new but uh i do like i, I like them all yeah um, I think so it, yeah it's just a, a look again this is part of that push towards the more energy efficient cleaner america huge investment in that um and then uh, uh 37 billion towards uh, uh electrifying the federal fleet um, rehabbing federal buildings because the old buildings are, I mean, they're old. It's the federal government. A lot of our buildings have been built as we grew. So mm-hmm. especially here in DC, you look at some of the buildings and even after they've been renovated a million times, they're just like, woof, we need some help. We need to, we need to get some insulation in here. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so almost half of this bill is going into a big bucket that's headed for the finance committee, the Senate finance committee, um, for what they're calling middle-class economic relief. And as you can imagine, this is probably one of the most contentious buckets in this entire bill. This part of the bill is for investments in working families, in the elderly, and the environment. It includes a tax cut for Americans that are making less than $400,000 a year, lowering the price of prescription drugs, and increasing or ensuring that the wealthy and that large corporations pay their fair share of taxes. There's $726 billion for the Health, Labor, Education, and Pensions Committee, which is a weird, I mean, it's not a weird committee, but it covers a lot, but mostly this money goes for- it's super broad. (laughs) It is super broad. But this money is for universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds, for childcare for working families, and then for tuition-free community college- It also includes funding for historically black colleges and universities and an expansion of the Pell Grant for higher education. This is this is the controversial bucket right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's the one I mean, this is the one that that AOC and, you know, the squad are like fighting for. Yeah. Um, Which always makes me laugh when people are like AOC doesn't know what being working class is like. And it's like. Disagree. I mean, she, she's like the most recently working class member of Congress, I think. Right. She, and she's from one of the most expensive cost of living areas in the entire country. Yeah. And the stuff that she's fighting for, like directly benefits working class people. So yeah. I'm very confused where this argument comes from. Um, a lot of people are hammering her for the Met Gala. If, yeah, <laughs> if you didn't it. know, she wore a dress at beautiful dress really that said uh tax the rich on it like in big red letters to the met gala beautiful 
And people are saying that because the Met is a $30,000 or $35,000 per ticket event, that she's a hypocrite and she is the rich. And it's like, it's a, it's a charity and yeah. she was invited by a designer. So yeah, I don't and, even think she paid for her ticket. And that's the thing that I don't think a lot of people understand about how these events work, which is normal and natural because you don't exist in the world of PR. Yeah. Um, but when you have these crazy ticket price events, it is very, very rarely the ticket holder that pays for their ticket. It's some corporation, some business, somebody buys a table, somebody buys a package or a suite or a booth, and then they invite the most high profile people they can possibly think of who are going to attract attention to the event. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why that's why and Representative Ocasio-Cortez was there. Yeah. And I think the designer who invited her, she's a very young woman and she started selling her clothes out of like um like secondhand stores, I think, or, yeah. or, or maybe consignment shops. She didn't have her own uh, place for it. But regardless, it's a cool story. It's a super think cool story. The only people who are pissed off about it are the people who don't understand, <laughs> which, <laughs> right. I mean, color me surprised. Um, they also don't want to try to understand. That is also true. Um, yeah, there's several more buckets. We're not going to cover them all. The big, the next biggest one is going to be for the Judiciary Committee. That's it's 170, 107 billion um, that are meant to uh, help establish lawful permanent status for qualified immigrants. Um, and then the remaining buckets, not all of them, but the big ones are aid for First Nations, um, small business aid, veteran aid, and then a massive investment in well. Actually, a relatively small investment yeah, compared small. to everything else, but a massive investment to normal people in healthcare of a billion dollars. There's also the other thing to understand is that there are multiple buckets that are hitting healthcare. So yeah. this is just more like the the what is left of healthcare stuff, like uh, paid family and medical leave, um, ACA expansion, uh, expanding Medicare, stuff like that. Yeah, it's uh, the way that this kind of funding, if I understand correctly, works is a lot of it goes through these Senate committees or these House committees. Um, and that those committees are then what distributes the money and determines how it, it gets placed. So when we talk about these buckets in the list that we're looking at, it talks about which committee they go to for distribution. And so that that's why you'll see healthcare in a few different places. It's because a few different committees actually cover that. Um, but I do want to take a second to talk about this $20 billion for aid to First Nations um, for the Indian Affairs Committee, because oh, yeah. we have for so very long missed the opportunity to invest in our First Nations people. And so this is a fairly significant investment in health programs and facilities and education and housing and energy, basically all of the things that we see covered in the other buckets, but specifically for the Native American communities through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Indian Affairs Committee. Um, yeah. And there's so there are also some native language programs um, that are really important to those communities because very many of them lost access to their native language for the most part. And so in order to kind of bring the communities back in the way that they want to, <clears throat> excuse me, they, we need to invest in those language programs. So yeah. that feels like a really important part of this to me that I think is going to get overlooked in all of this controversy about the Affordable Care Act and public housing reform. Yeah, it's um, it's especially the language. I'm glad you highlighted this, um, but 
if you've ever learned a language, um, it is a unique connection to a culture. You learn so much about the culture through the language. And if you're being, a lot of these communities are being cut off from their own culture through this mm-hmm. language. It, we could do more more episodes on the history of the treatment of the First Nations by the U.S. government um, than any other single episode we've done or a single topic we've done, I think. Yeah. Um, we've touched on it a lot in the first few episodes that are <laughs> super duper long um, where we talk about systemic racism. But yeah, this is a drop in the bucket for what we should be investing, but it's right. still a great start. And uh, I really hope that that can stay in this legislation because we do definitely, we need to be prioritizing investing in our native communities. Um, I'm sorry, our our First Nation communities. Um, So that's all well and good. We, this is, this all seems great, (laughs) but how do we pay for it? Because as we said, it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. So many monies. It's just crazy money. Um, and we're not raising taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. Um, so that is a large, I mean, the vast majority of the American population. Um, and it, there are other things. It doesn't include a gas tax increase or a fee on electric vehicles. So a lot of the traditional ways that one would imagine that the government would raise funds for something like this aren't necessarily applying. Um, the... The good news is it does not add 3.5 or combined $4.5 trillion to the deficit. Right. Um, The United States of America has a massive GDP. (laughs) And over the course of 10 years, it's something like $288 trillion, something like that. Right. So like we produce a lot of money. Yes. So much money. Um, so after all the math is, is done, um, the Congressional Budget Office I said that it would add um, only billions of dollars <laughs> right. to the deficit over the course of 10 years. Right. Uh, I think one independent organization um, called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which is a nonpartisan group that tracks and evaluates federal spending, uh, said that they believe that this will add about $350 billion to the deficit, which yeah. takes into account like a lot of the things that, that they're planning to offset these. But what, what I discovered when we were researching is that lawmakers, people who are writing these bills, make a lot of claims about how much the bill is going to pay for itself or how they're going to be able to offset it. And then you have these other evaluators that come in and say, well, actually, I think you mathed yeah. that wrong. <laughs> so yeah. there's um, there whenever we're throwing out like how we pay for these things, there's discrepancies between groups who are arguing yeah. for and against and completely independent as to how much of of legislation like this actually does get paid for in the way that the law says it's going to. Yeah. Um, it would be the highest height of hubris <laughs> for Robin and I to say that we could explain how this is going to get paid for. No, Cause the fact of the matter is it's, it's, no. it's when it comes to budgets like this, it, there is, there are so many ins and outs and bylaws and 
what about this and all this it's like the world's most complicated game of magic which is a super nerdy reference but if anybody else if anybody has played magic you know that there can be like 17 things happening in any one turn and they all just go off on the stack and it just complicates anything um and that's what happens to the budget there's so much (laughs) happening that and there's so much that's constantly constantly changing that it's just unless it is literally your job and even if it is literally your job it's impossible to to know exactly down to the scent how stuff's going to break. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, the lawmakers, the, our, our Congress, they've been saying that there's going to be like $263 billion, $265 billion, $200, $300 billion in savings mm-hmm. um, generated from this uh, from this package i think biden said something like 600 billion in savings which i suppose is theoretically true any of it could be true you just got to adjust your time scale you know, right. over what period of time um right. but again uh, other estimates are saying something like 22 billion in savings so eh. yeah it's so one of the primary ways that that people that that lawmakers propose paying for legislation like this is to take back and recover and repurpose money that they have allocated for other things that hasn't been spent. And they say, well, if we're not going to spend it over there, then we could just move it over here and spend it on this. And it actually reduces the cost. It's complicated. Uh, so, but one of the, the things that they're intending to repurpose is unused COVID relief funds. Um, so things like uh, unobligated appropriations for the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program that they they were working with small business and, lo- and nonprofits from the Paycheck Protection Program, from the Education Stabilization Fund, all of these different places that they put money during the pandemic to try to help people. Uh, when that is not used, they're thinking that they can recover that and help pay for leg- this legislation. Um and then some of that, about $53 billion of that, they're planning on coming from states that have opted to terminate their pandemic unemployment benefits early in order to encourage the jobless to return to work. Uh, that's some 26 states have announced that they're going to stop at least one of the federal unemployment programs before they're set to end early in September here. Um, but yeah. yeah, so it's like 26 states that are trying to do that. Yeah. Um, and then there'd be even more savings, <clears throat> more savings from uh, from delaying a controversial Trump administration rule. Imagine <laughs> such a thing. What? Um, I know. That would change how drugs are priced and how they're paid for in Medicare and Medicaid until 2026 um, at the earliest. Um, the measure effectively bans drug makers from providing rebates to pharmacy benefit managers and insurers. Um, instead, the drug, com- the drug companies would have to, or sorry, they would be encouraged uh, to pass the discounts directly to patients at the pharmacy counter. Um, so they wouldn't, basically all of the kickbacks that uh, benefit managers, the insurance companies, all of the kickbacks that they get from the pharma companies for, you know, pushing their product uh, would have to go directly towards paying for the product instead of paying off these people 
to sell their drugs. Yes, but it's it's because I this one got me real caught up, and I had to spend a few minutes trying to figure out why um, why the Biden administration would want to preserve kickbacks to <laughs> pharmacy managers and insurance yeah. companies. Um, but basically, from what I could tell, and please somebody out there correct me if I'm wrong. By eliminating those kickbacks, a lot of those kickbacks then allow or their their negotiations, their deals that are done that reduce the cost of the drugs as they get passed to the patient. However, if you eliminate all of those kickbacks and you only encourage the drug companies to pass the savings along, if you don't make any sort of a requirement, um, then they can go back to charging full price, not making any deals and essentially the patient, the person who will pay for the medication may end up paying more for it than they did under this otherwise shady shifty system of kickbacks. Um, It's a really convoluted way to actually try to protect consumer prices, but yeah. Yeah. The, the, the key there is that it doesn't have any teeth for forcing the pharmacy companies to lower their prices. So if there's no incentive for them to lower the price, they're not going to. They're just exactly. going to pocket the money they would otherwise spend and then pocket the money that they would now that they're now going to make uh, because nobody's negotiating the price down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then another way that the infrastructure proposal intends to pay for itself is to generate about fifty five fifty six billion dollars in economic growth. So all of these things that we're investing in, all of this infrastructure and the way that we're changing things, they anticipate that creating about $55 billion of growth in the economy to help pay for that. Yeah. Um, And then there's also going to be, and I think this one's like the elephant in the room. um, (laughs) Yes. Changing our tax system. A lot of changes to the tax. Um, Imposing tax reporting requirements for cryptocurrency brokers. Um, Basically, the way stockbrokers report their customer sales to the IRS. Mm -hmm. Right now, cryptocurrency is like the wild, wild west. It is absolutely absurd. There's zero regulation. The thing is, it's very difficult to regulate because it's not centralized anywhere. It's global. And the United States doesn't necessarily have jurisdiction to 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 impose any regulation that they would normally do for a for a stock style um, investment or money I guess scheme don't <laughs> read into that I'm not trying to make it sound negative just right in the general sense of the word yeah um, that plan could raise about 28 billion in revenue over 10 years Um there's also a plan to bolster IRS enforcement uh, to crack down on tax cheating <laughs> by individuals and businesses. Um, but that that got shot down. Yeah. That one was shot down by the Republicans. It and it would have brought in an estimated $100 billion over yeah. 10 years. So um, something that so is yeah. really controversial along these same lines that is popping up in my Facebook feed like mad. And it is causing... Family fights, like knock down, drag out family fights in the comments, um, is this concept of increased reporting in individual bank accounts. Mm -hmm. So previously, banks were required to report on any transactions coming in going out over $10,000. 
They're talking about lowering that threshold to $600, which if you think about it, that's lower than many people's average paycheck when it comes in, goes out. Most of us pay that much or more for our mortgage, things like that. So um, this increased visibility into individual bank accounts, the proposal is that it will decrease the amount of cheating or evasion on people's taxes. Um, The goal really isn't to monitor my bank account, right? Because mine is Mm. super boring. But if I made a little more money than I do, and I was looking for ways to get around paying individual income taxes. Just a little. Just a little bit. um, Some of those, those smaller transactions are actually where a lot of that evasion comes and goes. So the idea is that by increasing visibility into those smaller transactions, they can do a better job of recovering taxes that people should be paying that they are not. I'm not defending that. I still don't know how I feel about it. I have a lot more investigation to do about it. It's really intriguing to me, but I do know that it is a part of how they intend to pay for this legislation. Yeah. Um, (laughs) As somebody who has worked uh, at a bank and also (laughs) as law enforcement, Allow me to shine some light on this. That $10,000 reporting threshold is not necessarily limited to a single transaction. So it already, the way the law already works is that if you have a, they call it suspicious activity. If you have suspicious activity in your account, it doesn't matter what size the, um, the deposit or withdrawal is, you can be reported. Um, now the reporting requirements are that the total amount does exceed 10,000, but even that there are ways to, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to hit that. That's just automatically going to trigger it. They call like one of the popular things to do to try to avoid that trigger is called structuring, which is where you make, uh, multiple smaller deposits. So you don't make one large deposit over $10,000. You make like seven, you know, $300 deposits and a couple thousand dollar deposits and maybe a $2,000 deposit until you get to whatever the final amount is that's over $10,000 that you were trying to deposit. The thing is, even doing that, uh, any bank worth their salt is going to see that you're suddenly depositing, making several deposits in a relatively close time frame. Yeah. And this is different than your normal banking activity. Right. And they're just going to report it anyway. It's probably less shifty um, just to dump the whole 10 grand in there. Uh, it's definitely less shifty. Just, it'll automatically trigger the report, but the report will be something like so-and-so randomly deposited 10 grand. And then that's it, right? right? Whereas if you try to structure it like and try to go to different branches, it's it's silly, but like people don't think that different branches of different of the same bank like talk to each other so they'll go to one branch over here on you know in downtown and then they'll go five blocks north and go to a different branch and make a different transaction and it's like no i can see your whole account literally your whole account's the same bank dude the internet exists and that's how your account works like this is oh you're special um (laughs) so yeah it's it is the information that they want, from what I understand, is deposits and withdrawals only. So they don't want any of your PII beyond, I think, your name, 
you know, to know who, who the account is. It might be, there'll be an identifiable information obviously in there. Um, but it's not like they want to know every single transaction ever and how you're spending your money and where it's going. It's, did you deposit 600? How much was the deposit? And did you withdraw 600 or more? And how much was that? Um, and that will allow them to more accurately track, allegedly, more accurately track um, how much money these people who are not W-2 wage earners, right. like the super rich who are getting their money from the stock market um, or other means, how much money they're actually making yeah. so that then you can accurately tax them according to what their burden should be. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, generally I'm in favor of making everybody paying their fair share. I mean, <laughs> taxes are the price you pay to live in America and have all of the opportunities that that presents. Right. And only toddlers ask for stuff for free, in my opinion. Uh, and that's just because they don't understand that things don't work like that. So if people are complaining because suddenly they're going to have a tax burden that they have previously avoided, you know, illegally, right? then um, they need to grow up. Yeah. That's and my opinion on that. To be fair, it, this is a lot like... Um, not, it's a lot like the people complaining about the Met Gala tickets, right? The yeah. people who are complaining are doing so because they're concerned. They're afraid that the government is going to be looking at their bank account. Um, they're afraid that they're going to end up in a Will Smith en enemy of the state situation, which, oh, man. you know, I, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do understand how it can feel like an ever encroaching perspective into our individual lives. So there's a lot of grace there, but I think that a lot of the confusion, a lot of the frustration about things like this, like the crypto um, brokerage tax visibility stuff comes from that misunderstanding of how these systems work and how they're used. Yeah. Um, trust me, everybody listening, the government does not have enough people to right. pay attention to your bank account. They really <laughs> they just, don't. We don't. I mean, not my bank um, account. Certainly nobody cares about that. And same goes for your phone calls. Yeah. Just there's, there's no FBI agent watching. I, mm -hmm. I can for 99.999% of you. If you're under investigation for committing a crime, <laughs> yeah, okay. that's Disclaimer. different. And, um, and let me just say, now seems like an appropriate time to tell the people who are worried about, you know, being spied upon. Um, you don't have anything to worry about if you did nothing wrong. I, right? That's how that logic sarcasm, works, Robin. The sarcasm that is just dripping from that, that statement. But I thought that's, I mean, that's, that's how that works, right? That's 100% how it works, unless yeah. you feel like you are the person who's being wronged in that situation. If you, if you didn't do anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. Exactly. exactly. I hear it all the time. I can, As a person I'm, who works in marketing, I can tell you that Facebook and Google are paying far more attention to what you're doing than the oh, IRS yeah. or the FBI. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For Trust sure. Trust me. For sure. I'm going to get an ad for uh, for probably for a VPN here as soon yep. as I check my phone just from having this conversation. And a crypto brokerage and... Oh, yeah. I've already got that on my phone. Oh. <laughs> there you go. They can't give me an ad. I got it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gambling. Anyway, we are so far off course. The, the short 
of the story is um, a combination of future savings, money that will not have to be spent in crisis mode, like repairing infrastructure after a hurricane hits. Yep. That is more expensive than preventing the damage from the hurricane in the first place. So that's how you pay for things like this. You invest now for savings later. That's part of it. The other part is increased taxes on the rich. We're talking the 1%. Even um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has kind of been hinting that her original definition of what super rich was is wrong. And she's talking about multimillionaires and billionaires now. Mm -hmm. Um, And the lowest number I'm seeing thrown around is $400,000 a year. And that is like geez louise i can't imagine making that much money i'm like taking off a list of my head of episodes that we probably need to do to cover the ground about the things that we're talking about in this one and like we do we do need to talk about how tax structures work because you know like you aren't taxed on the whole of your income at one rate it's staggering and it it gets really complicated the richer you get yeah that's true and if you would like us to expand on any of the topics that have come into your head during this episode, you can do that at firesidebreakdowns.com. That's our website. It's got all of the cool stuff on it. It's got our show notes. It's got all of our episodes. It's got links to all of our social medias. It's got a contact form on it. So if you're like, yo, I don't understand how, you know, marginal tax rates work, then we can help you with that. You just send us the message. We'll go, Okay, we'll put that on the list to research. Yeah. And you know what? It also has a link to our Patreon on there. So if you want to bribe us to do that research faster, that's where you do it. Because guess what? We do take bribes. We definitely take bribes. And we're transparent about it. So if if it's up front, then it's just payment for service. It's not actually a bribe. So yeah, um, please check that out. We are setting a goal right now. We've been talking about it to (laughs) lift some of the burden off of our shoulders because this takes a lot of work. Um, We we would like to get up to $400 a month in donations so that we can hire somebody to do our mixing for us Um, or pay somebody to help us research. But we're on the fence. It's going to be one of those two things. We're not 100% about it yet. The research Um, is the fun part. Yeah, we do enjoy that. So it's probably going to be somebody who can edit for us because, frankly, that takes a significant chunk of my time every weekend. And my wife will probably murder me soon. Accurate. So please save my life and help us get somebody to help us. Yeah. You might even get cool, like, sound effects and better. That's true. Like, Like, production quality than we know how to do. Just better. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like. I mean, I'm pretty proud of what I do, but it's also not great, and I know that, and I appreciate all of your patience I for mean, everybody listening. I mean, for somebody whose who's actual day-to-day job involves none of the audio editing, I think you do a pretty damn good job. Thank you, Robin. Appreciate it. Anyway, um, do we have good news I this week? I got some good news. I got some good news right here. Hit us. All right. Hit us. Last week, Harvard University President Lawrence Bacow, Bacow? Baco, I don't know, announced that as of June, the Harvard Management Company no longer had any direct investments in fossil fuels and that they would not make any future investments in fossil fuels. And he said that the Harvard Harvard Management Company has indirect investments through private equity firms that make up less than 2% of their endowment, and they are in runoff mode and will end those as soon as the partnerships are liquidated. Um, 
I like how they added that to the announcement because you know somebody was going to start digging through the financials and be like, they lied. Right. <laughs> exactly. And so the reason that this is important is that Harvard has the country's largest academic endowment, which basically is a whole lot of money that people donate to the university that they put in the stock market and invest in things and try to grow that and use to pay for things at the university. Currently is totaling $41.9 billion, according to NPR. <laughs> That's that's more funny money, man. That's uh, that's crazy money. Right. No so wonder. the idea that give me a full ride, Harvard. Exactly. The idea that an endowment fund that big would stop its investment in fossil fuels and um, sunset that and choose to invest in other things, hopefully green energy. That's kind of what has been intended by the activist groups that drove that change. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that's some good news as long as we're talking about all this investment in the future and the newer and the better that's right it is great news and i think next week unless something changes and somebody sends us money to do something else we'll be talking about why gas prices are what they are oh yeah and who's responsible for them so that's a great segue into that as well yes but until that time thank you everybody for listening we hope you uh enjoyed the more laissez-faire fair of our discussion on (laughs) these budget things um we will see you one week from now and until that time everybody take care of each other